The Old Pilots Playing Tales. Life's Too Short. It's the 3rd of January 1961, and a Douglas DC-3 of the company Aero was departing late, but not by much. By 7.16, the early morning flight was taking off from Kronobi Airport in Finland for the short hop to Vasa, a mere 30 minutes away. On board, the Finnish aircraft were 22 passengers and three crew members. Shortly after takeoff, the first officer made the request to air traffic control that they be given free flying altitude, allowing them to choose their own cruising height above the minimum of 1,500 feet for the route. This request was granted. Their route lay southwards along the northwest coast of Finland where the land meets the beautiful bay of Bothnia with a series of tiny islands and rocky inlets. As they approached their destination they would fly over the Kavakan archipelago shaped by millennia of glaciation leaving beautiful hilly scenery with high islands, steep shores, smooth cliffs and deep inlets, now a World Heritage Site. The last radio transmission heard from Flight 311 occurred when they confirmed the weather report for Vasa Airport, which showed that the airfield had a visibility of 10 kilometers and overcast cloud at 800 feet. There are also reports of radiation fog in the area. They advised that they would soon be at the SEPA NDB beacon about 25 miles from the airport. Despite being required to maintain a minimum height of 1,500 feet, the captain decided to descend his aircraft early to a height of less than 330 feet. Both the captain and his first officer were veteran pilots of the Second World War, with the captain being a fighter ace, having shot down six enemy aircraft. About 7.45am, Constable Nils Malmberg was notified by telephone that the plane had crashed and was on fire. The intense burning of the aircraft prevented anyone from taking rescue action until eventually the fire was extinguished. By then it was too late to render assistance to any possible survivors and all 25 occupants were declared dead. An intensive investigation was conducted and from the witness statements of over 50 people who observed or heard the aircraft, the flight was reenacted several times until a close approximation of the Alpha Yankee 311's final manoeuvres was conducted. It appeared that the route was flown below the minimum altitude specified and that the wrong flight altitude was reported by radio. The reason for flying low may initially have been caused by low cloud, as some had been reported at 1,300 feet, and that there may have been a slight ice formation when flying in the cloud. On the other hand, the investigators could find no objective reason for continuing the flight at an even lower level, which was also demonstrated by the fact that the plane was reported at the wrong flight altitude. It was therefore clear that, during the flight in question, there was an intentional and unjustified breach of the rules by flying at too low an altitude. The final manoeuvre that led to the crash of Flight 311 was a hard left turn flown at below 150 feet. 
In the turn, the aircraft slowed sufficiently for the wings to stall, and despite trying to correct the situation by applying full engine power, this was insufficient to prevent the aircraft from entering a spin and hitting the ground in an extreme attitude. The aircraft was completely destroyed by the impact and the subsequent fire. The official inquiry concluded that the aircraft had been airworthy and that the probable cause of the accident was pilot error. However, there was a contributory cause that we can look at in a moment. JAL 8054 was a cargo flight that took to the air 16 years after that of Aero 311. A large four-engine jet, the DC-8 was carrying a load of live cattle to Tokyo from Grant County Airport in the state of Washington via Anchorage. Waiting at Anchorage Airport was a fresh flight crew who were going to take the aircraft on the second leg of its long journey. The captain was American and his first officer and flight engineer were Japanese, but this was an unusual situation at the time since JAL was expanding rapidly and didn't have enough experienced pilots to captain all its aircraft. The crew of three with the two animal handlers took over the aircraft for an early morning departure and just over an hour later they took off for the flight to Japan. However, some ice had been noticed around the engine inlets by the contract maintenance crew advised the JAL engineers that the crew should try to get rid of it using engine anti-ice. Conditions at Anchorage were also likely to cause significant rime ice and possibly some clear ice, but no de-icing was requested. The captain made several mistakes during the pre-flight period and taxi out, but his greatest error was during takeoff, when he rotated the aircraft higher than the normal target angle, which resulted in slower than normal acceleration to the V2 speed. This was accompanied by the sound of buffeting, and with no attempt made to lower the nose, the aircraft began to stall. The DC-8 only reached an altitude of 160 feet before the steep attitude of 18 degrees and the climb reversed into a descent. A second before impact, the stall warning activated and it was likely that it had previously been inhibited due to ice present on the wings where the sensor was mounted. The five humans and all the cattle on board perished in the crash. The NTSB report concluded that after rotation the aircraft was pitched to an abnormally high angle of attack that exceeded that required to stall the wing with the existing accretion of ice. The performance of the aircraft was a result of the misuse of the flight controls by the captain aggravated by the existence of airframe icing. As with the previous accident, this wasn't the only finding. Fast forward to 2008 and the flight of Aeroflot Nord 821 from Moscow to Perm in Russia. On board the late night flight of the Boeing 737-500 series was a crew of six and 82 passengers. Although the company operating this aircraft claimed that the flight crew were very experienced and one of the best in the airline, 
It appears that the captain had only occupied the left seat for a little over 450 hours, and his first officer had considerably less experience. Both pilots had extensive time flying the Russian Tupolev Tu-134 and the Antonov An-2, and they had submitted false documents showing that they had passed the required courses on the Boeing they were now flying. The flight had started with the usual Aeroflot pre-flight briefing, followed by a medical check at the medical office of Aeroflot, where the crew received permission to fly. Just after nine in the evening, with preparations complete, Flight 821 got airborne and completed an uneventful flight to the start of the descent into Perm. Uneventful, that is, other than mandatory cross-checks were not carried out. Flight modes were changed without informing the other pilot. No call-outs about the FMA indications or flight mode changes were made. The checklists were not read, and at times control was passed from one pilot to another without the mandatory call-out, which resulted in situations when, during some portions of the flight, virtually nobody controlled the aircraft. On arriving overhead the airfield, the crew started a series of procedural turns to position the aircraft on the instrument landing system for runway 21. After a base turn, they were approaching the landing course at a height of 2,000 feet, manually flying the aircraft with the autopilot and autothrottle disengaged. An additional defect required the pilot to set different thrust lever positions to ensure that the engines provided equal thrust. This required the levers to be staggered by up to 15 degrees, adding to the handling difficulty. By now the crew had configured the aircraft by putting the gear down and selecting flap 30. During the turn, flown by the first officer, he matched the thrust levers, which created a significant yawing moment to the left, and he didn't apply rudder to compensate. The aircraft was being flown poorly, with significant changes of altitude, speed, pitch and roll, and fluctuations of thrust. Then the aircraft was pitched up to over 20 degrees, and it reached 4,300 feet, leading to a significant reduction of speed to around 110 knots. Being poorly positioned to intercept the ILS, the controller ordered them to go around. The captain acknowledged, but failed to comply. Instead, he turned left and asked to continue his approach. The controller again insisted that they go around and told them to go to another frequency. Whilst the captain was conducting this lengthy discussion with the air traffic controller, he failed to monitor the flight properly. When he did act, not having situational awareness, he abruptly applied left bank, rolling the aircraft to 70 degrees. The first officer tried to correct the situation, but the captain finally overturned the 737, causing it to pitch down to 65 degrees. From this extreme attitude, it was impossible to recover, and the aircraft crashed, killing all on board. The inquiry concluded that the accident was caused by spatial disorientation, exacerbated by the conventional Western-style attitude indicator fitted to the Boeing, which differed significantly from the type used on older Russian aircraft that both pilots had flown. 
amongst the findings of the accident were references to fatigue, a lack of training, a lack of experience and poor aircraft maintenance. The unexpected behaviour of the captain was put down to a high level of emotional stress most likely caused by a significant factor. I bring these three accidents to your attention for a very good reason. They're all linked. Having recently published the tale of Ian Palmer and in his interview listened to him describe the condition that resulted in his dependence on alcohol, I thought it was worth examining what can happen when flight crews, unlike Ian, don't take responsibility for their lives. For a significant factor that is present in all three crashes is alcohol. Let's go back to the first accident, that of the Aero DC-3. To this very day, this remains the deadliest civilian aircraft accident in the history of Finland, which is a remarkable tribute to the professionalism of their pilots since 1961. The accident investigation revealed that neither pilot was in a fit state to fly. The captain, for example, had a blood alcohol content of 0.2, and his first officer a little less, but still more than twice the normally accepted level today for driving a car. The previous evening they had been drinking heavily, consuming with one other 16 bottles of beer, 7 gin grogs and cognac. They finished up at two in the morning and were probably awake four hours later to go to the airport. Even in 1961, the provisions of the IKO Treaty and the pilots' job contracts barred intoxication whilst in command of a plane, provisions that the pilots ignored. Of the JAL DC-8 crew, only the captain had been drinking the night before, but when he reported for duty the next day, it was obvious to several people that something was wrong. Witnesses reported that his face was red, his eyes glassy, and his speech disjointed and slurred. He had difficulty getting out of his taxi, and was obviously having trouble staying on his feet. His cab driver was so concerned that he called his office, who in turn contacted the jail control room. The agent who took the call promised to look into it, but by the time he informed his manager, the flight was already taxiing out. The Japanese first officer and flight engineer were obviously witnesses to the captain's behaviour, his lack of motor skills and the errors that he made, but such were their cultural influences and the authority gradient that they felt they preferred to accept the situation rather than intervene. The young first officer was concerned enough to try to discuss it with the flight engineer in Japanese, but the other man was too busy with his flight preparations. Although we know nothing of the Aeroflot captain's behaviour before his fatal flight, we do know that he had broken several regulations by submitting falsified documents in order to get his job with the airline. We also know that he was severely fatigued because his flying schedule broke national regulations in the three days preceding the accident. He had flown six flights, two of which had been night flights, so he'd been unable to get a night's sleep. However, 
forensic examination of his remains confirmed the presence of alcohol in the captain's body before his death. The maximum blood alcohol content for driving in countries around the world is generally between 0.02 and 0.08. The estimated BAC for the captain of this flight when trying to land was 0.12. The term alcoholism was originally coined in 1849 by Magnus Huss, and until the 1940s it referred primarily to the physical consequences of long-term heavy drinking. A narrower and more modern concept is that it is a disease caused by a pre-existing biological abnormality and having a predictable progressive course. Medically, alcoholism is considered both physical and a mental condition with environmental factors and genetics being the two components, with about half the risk attributed to each. But you don't have to be an alcoholic to fly with an unsafe level of alcohol in your body. And the only safe level is zero. Flying is an environment where the pilot's senses, coordination and mental faculties are vital to the safe conduct of a flight. Getting airborne, having taken something that might impair one's flying ability, is a complete anathema to the vast majority of aviators out there. So it's vital that we look at ourselves and our fellow pilots to recognize those who might need help. The comradeship of flying communities, whether they be your friends at the local flying club or getting together with your airline crew, commonly revolves around having a drink or two, which is fine. What is vital, however, is the need to ensure that you are both well rested and sober before climbing into the cockpit. And please remember, it's both a personal responsibility and the responsibility of your peers to ensure that happens. Now, whose round is it? And fly safe out there. If I join you, I, I'll just drop in for a little drink to settle my nerves before I go to work. Work. <laughs> what, what, what sort of work do you do? I'm an airline pilot. <laughs> If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.